Oh my god, they're dead! Who could have done such a heinous act? I bet it was that frog down by the swamp. I don't like that frog. He's got them shifty eyes. It was that convict Ironjaw, that rapscallion. I bet it was that strange shadowy figure that likes to swing in the park on Thursday nights. I swear to you, it was my stuffed panda. He's, he's possessed. It could have been Ricky's arm. We haven't seen it since it got cut off. I definitely know who the killer is. That way. Blank is the killer. Hello and welcome to Blank is the Killer, the unoriginal horror movie podcast where I blabber on about six new-to-me horror movies with a random spooky seventh topic lingering at the end, released every two weeks. This episode I'll be going over sexy witches, cannibal cavemen, death birds, and other terrifying things like big houses. Let's dive off the deep end into a blood-filled swimming pool that has the movies I watched floating on top. Number 1, The Demons, 1972, directed by Jesus Franco. A witch is burned alive at the stake. She curses all of those responsible for her suffering and says her daughters will avenge her. Two sisters, Kathleen and Margaret, are nuns in a convent. They catch the devil, which leads to Kathleen being captured and called a witch multiple times, and Margaret to actually become a witch with powers. Margaret avenges her mother's death, by turning all of her mother's tormentors into skeletons before being burned at the stake herself. Margaret, Truro, Renfield, Jeffries, and Unknown Swordsman are the killers. I'd explain who some of those characters that I didn't mention in the summary are, if it mattered. This movie is basically a very long and boring softcore porno with very light horror elements. I should have expected this after seeing the titles of other Franco movies like Vampiros Lesbos, but given that these movies were mostly released in the 60s and 70s, I decided to give one of them a chance. There were a ton on Shudder, which is like Netflix for only horror movies, after all. And so I assumed they'd be kind of fun at least. This movie was a chore to sit through though. It was also one of the longer movies I've watched for the podcast. Nothing of value really happens in the movie. We get a bunch of nudity just because. There isn't really much gore, even though there are a ton of torture scenes. What most of these torture scenes consist of is a restrained character with little clothing getting pinched by what are basically giant pliers. I'm no expert on torture devices. It seems that these devices were supposed to be red hot to cause burns, but they don't glow or anything. Fake blood was applied on the inside of the tools to leave marks on the actors who are terribly trying to act in pain. I can't even tell how bad the acting was honestly, since it appears the movie was originally filmed in Spanish, then dubbed into French, and I watched it with English subtitles. The characters' mouths don't match what is being said at all. The reasoning for the dubbing of the film in French is the fact that Spain had much stricter censorship laws. This caused Franco to release French versions of his films so he could include all the naughty bits. Even though I feel like the entire movie was a waste of time, there were a few things that I enjoyed. The sets and costumes are beautiful. There is one executioner 
who is a shirtless man with a red hood and giant mustache that is hilariously out of place, which makes a scene unintentionally funny. I absolutely love the scenes where Margaret kills her targets. Basically, she needs to get her mouth on her targets to kill them, and as long as she makes contact, she has the power to turn them into skeletons, which is hilarious. It's not a slow transition or anything, it's just boom, skeleton. She kills two guys with kisses, and a lady with a downstairs kiss. It's a ridiculous climax to say the least. Looking further into Franco's career, it appears that I watched a movie from his low-budget, heavy adult period of filmmaking, so maybe in the future I will give him another shot. While watching The Demons, I checked my progress and thought it was almost over, only to find out the horrible truth. It was only at the halfway point. I almost gave up on even finishing this one. Definitely never watch this movie. Number 2, House, 1985, directed by Steve Miner. After a writer named Roger's aunt dies, he begins living in her house to try and finish his new book about when he was in Vietnam. He recently lost, as in literally lost, his son and went through a divorce. The house begins attacking him with monsters, tools, and a fish. He ends up finding his son in another dimension the house is connected to and learns that his old war buddy, Big Ben, has come back from the dead and had taken Roger's son. Ben did all this because Roger wouldn't give him a merciful death and instead let him get captured and tortured in Vietnam. Roger confronts his fears and everything ends up okay. The house and war are the killers. I'm going to say the house killed Roger's aunt even though it looks like she hung herself since she comes back as a ghost and tells him the house tricked her. This movie is a horror comedy and I personally didn't find it funny or scary in the least. None of the jokes landed for me. I could see punchlines coming from a mile away. The acting in it is especially bad. It's hammy to the extreme on purpose, I assume, but since none of the humor lands, the forced ham hurts the movie. You're supposed to find Roger's antics funny, but I didn't like the actor, William Cat at all, and the writing does not help. The house itself is amazing. It's one of those really old manors. It's kind of like a less spooky Adams Family house. It's the type of home I'd love to own, but buying a house like that is a pipe dream in this day and age. There are some interesting practical monsters in this movie. The first one you see jump out of the closet and attack Roger is grotesque and creepy in all the right ways. There is a monster that pretends to be Roger's ex-wife Sandy that is the centerpiece to a lot of fun scenes. If the movie would have spent more time with these monsters and less time with the Vietnam backstory, I think it would have stood a better chance at being recommended. There are multiple flashbacks to Roger's time in Vietnam that don't really do anything for the story besides create a reason for one of his old war buddies to randomly pop up at the end as the antagonist. There's a connection to some otherworldly dimension, and instead of fighting against more creepy monsters that are introduced throughout the movie, we instead have Roger face off against Big Ben, who looks like he was created by a quick trip to the Halloween store. I was much more interested in the closet monster, flying demon skull bat thing, and weird grotesque monster people that were shown earlier, but for the climax we get Big Ben, who I don't really have any interest in. A swordfish on the wall comes to life, just like Big Mouth Billy Bass, which is kind of funny. 
It might have been a Marlin. I just learned there is a difference, but honestly, who cares? Roger decides to shoot the mounted fish with a shotgun for reasons. There isn't a ton of gore in this, even though we get a decapitation of the ex-wife monster. There isn't any blood splatter or anything. Whenever one of the monsters popped up, all I could think about was how much better these kind of monster sequences were done in movies like Brain Dead and Evil Dead. Roger even stuffs a grenade into Big Ben's torso, and I didn't get excited. Steve Miner directed the first two Friday the 13th sequels and Halloween H2O, so I know that he can make fun horror movies. This movie just felt so plain and mediocre. Skip this. It's not the worst thing I've ever seen, it's just incredibly average. Number 3, Bone Tomahawk, 2015, directed by S. Craig Zoller. Mr. O'Dwyer's wife, the town's deputy, and a drifter named Purvis are kidnapped by a troglodyte clan. This prompts Mr. O'Dwyer, Franklin Hunt the sheriff, Chicory the backup deputy, and John Bruder to set off on a rescue mission. Mr. O'Dwyer falls behind the others due to a hurt leg he had since the beginning of their journey. The others get to the clan headquarters where things don't go well. Mr. O'Dwyer eventually makes it to the cave and is able to only save his wife and Chicory. Purvis, his partner in crime buddy, Troglodytes, and Bruder are the killers. This was being labeled as a horror movie, so I finally decided to check it out. I'd say Western horror isn't something you get to see very often outside of a Scooby-Doo Ghost Town episode. I'm definitely going to try to seek out some more Western horror, since I think it is an awesome genre. Something was off about how this movie was shot. I can't quite put my finger on it. This was Zoller's directorial debut, which might be the reason things seemed just a little off. That said, I still think that everything looked alright, cinematography-wise, for the most part. The acting in this is weird. I think the writing really hurt the acting, though, since a lot of the dialogue either feels like it doesn't fit the era or is trying too hard to. There's a really odd disconnect. Patrick Wilson plays Mr. O'Dwyer, and I'm honestly not a fan of him. I don't think he's a good actor. I thought Lily Simmons was also bad as Mrs. O'Dwyer. Part of the gang ends up getting captured and taken to the cave where Mrs. O'Dwyer is already captive, and her character is completely nonchalant about being imprisoned by terrifying cannibals that graphically murder characters right in front of her. She doesn't appear to be distressed in the least. Her line delivery is also uninspiring during the cave scenes. Kurt Russell plays Kurt Russell. Matthew Fox and Richard Jenkins do a pretty good job as Bruder and Chicory, respectively. There are some absolutely brutal kills in this. People get disemboweled, tomahawks to the face, severed digits, decapitated, but I'd say the most disturbing kill is when the deputy is stripped and scalped. To muffle his screams, the Trog cannibals gag him with his own scalp, as you do when your scalping victim is screaming bloody murder. Then they flip him upside down and start cutting and pulling him apart at the groin until his delicious insides fall out. I will say this is one of the most yeesh-inducing kills that has ever been on this podcast. I don't think I've covered something this yeeshful since Gerald's game. All the gore effects are executed impeccably, which only heightens the, oh no, factor when you see 
these horrific things happen, like when the sheriff gets his torso cut open and a flask that was sitting on hot coals is shoved into the wound. This is definitely not a movie for anyone who's squeamish. One thing I found really interesting is the fact that a lot of horror moments happen during the day when the rescue party gets ambushed by the trogs. You would expect for all these gory action scenes to happen at night, but there is actually a lot of sunlit blood, which felt incredibly fresh. The trogs themselves are pretty creepy, some more than others, since the ones without animal bones and tusks protruding from their faces don't look nearly as menacing. The trogs make a high-pitched, terrifying shriek that makes them sound like demons. At first, I thought it was just decided that they would naturally sound like this, but it's revealed that they have a device implanted in their necks that allows them to make the sound. Mr. O'Dwyer has a hurt leg from the beginning of the movie. It is a little hard to suspend your disbelief when it comes to him traversing the frontier, horseless, with only the aid of a janky crutch. It's even harder to believe that he is able to best a ton of the trogs to save the day given how imposing they are portrayed up to the point he arrives at the cave. The movie is a lot longer than it needs to be. I feel like a ton of scenes that are set in the town before the party takes off could have been cut to help with the pacing, since the beginning is awfully slow. The movie had its world premiere at Fantastic Fest in Austin. I'd say give this a watch if you enjoy westerns and can handle some visceral gore. Number 4, Severance, 2006, directed by Christopher Smith. People that work for an arms dealer go on a retreat, but due to poor management, they end up at a place that isn't the correct lodge. Once there, they are hunted by multiple men that have been wronged by the weapon company. Two co-workers, Maggie and Steve, and two prostitutes, escape after fighting against the men and jumping in a boat. Men wronged by the Palisade Defense Military Arms Corporation and a higher up in that corporation named George are the killers. George is barely in the movie but ends up blowing up a commercial airline, which makes you a killer. More kind of a, of a mass murderer, but semantics. There was a lot of buzz surrounding a movie called The Belko Experiment, which led to a lot of people bringing up this movie, since they both include corporate workers. I haven't seen The Belko Experiment, but I watched the trailer for Severance a while back and decided it wasn't something I would like. Whoever put the trailer together made this movie look absolutely terrible. I decided to watch it anyways and was pleasantly surprised. The movie's tone is completely different than what the trailer led me to believe. The movie is dark and intense while also having some genuine comedy throughout. Pretty much all of the coworker stereotypes are in this. You have the terrible manager, weird suck up, cool guy, clown jerk off, smart girl, guy that gets walked all over, and the girl everyone at the office fawns over. When the clown jerk off character Steve was introduced, he was shown ordering prostitutes and doing a ton of drugs. I thought I was going to hate his character, but he ends up being alright. Maggie is the office hot girl, and throughout the whole movie I thought she looked familiar. Laura Harris, who plays her, was in Dead Like Me, which is a really cool show about people that end up reaping souls after they die. I may cover it as a seventh topic after a rewatch someday. The acting in this is actually pretty good. Everyone sold their character. There is a good amount of gore. The most ridiculous gore scene is when the cool guy gets his head cut off. 
His head rolls away from his body, which is shot from the perspective of the head, which is neat. This allows him to be able to see the blood spurting out of his neck. He watches this and his head smiles, since he was right about being conscious after being decapitated. He brings up Mary Antoinette's execution earlier in the movie and stated that her head was still conscious for minutes. There are stories from back in the guillotine days that say heads could blink and focus their eyes after popping off their bods, but modern science believes those instances were just muscle spasms. They aren't 100% sure though. Some of the workers believe different stories about the building they end up in, which are shown by random added scenes that are shot completely different than the movie. One of them is a parody of Nosferatu, which I will be covering later on in this episode. Showing the three stories about the building in this manner was a great idea, and way more interesting than just watching the characters tell the stories. When Steve is tripping on mushrooms, he keeps seeing himself in different places, which I also thought was an interesting way to show he was tripping balls. I don't believe that you'd have out-of-body experiences like what is shown from taking mushrooms, but the sequence is something I enjoyed. From the beginning of the movie, a romance between Maggie and Steve is being concocted, which I wasn't there for. Luckily, at the end of the movie, when Maggie, Steve, and the two prostitutes are in the boat, instead of a groan-inducing moment where Steve and Maggie kiss like you think they will, the movie ends with Steve looking at Maggie and saying, Foursome? The gunshot effects in this movie are pretty bad. The sounds they make are weird at times, as well as the muzzle flashes. One of the prostitutes unloads a submachine gun, which looks and sounds especially awful. Bad gun effects aside, I recommend giving this a watch. It's a solid horror comedy. Number 5, Nosferatu, 1922, directed by F.W. Murnau. A man named Hutter sets off to Transylvania at the behest of his boss, Nock, to sell a house to Count Orlock. While at the castle, Hutter gets bitten and finds out that Count Orlock is Nosferatu, also known as the Bird of Death. After looking through a book about evil things and seeing Orlock in his full creep form, Orlock loads up some coffins and makes his way to Wisburg, where Hutter sold him a house. Orlock leaves a trail of bodies along the way, which everyone assumes is a plague's doing. The townspeople think Nock is somehow behind it, but he is only responsible for the death of one guard. Hutter escapes the castle and gets back to Wisburg. He goes to his wife Ellen, who has seen Orlock. She asks Hutter to go get a guy named Professor Bulwer to help them. Ellen had learned from the earlier book that she can defeat Orlock if she distracts him with her beauty, pure heart, and tasty blood long enough for the sun to rise. Orlock enters Ellen's bedroom and begins to suck her blood. He doesn't watch the clock and the sun comes up, which kills him. Hutter comes back just in time to hold Ellen before she dies. Nock and Count Orlock a.k.a. Nosferatu, a.k.a. The Bird of Death, are the killers. This is the first silent film I have watched for the podcast. I thought it might also be the last, but I plan on checking out some other German expressionist horror films in the future, at least The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Nosferatu is probably one of the oldest movies I've ever seen, and I found it incredibly enjoyable. Like Dracula, Nosferatu is an adaptation of Bram Stoker's Dracula, 
It is an unauthorized adaptation, which is why the names and terms are different. For example, Nosferatu instead of Vampire. Bram Stoker's widow sued for copyright infringement and won the case. I guess the rules were a lot stricter back then, since I feel there are some key differences between Nosferatu and its source material. All the copies of the film were supposed to be burned because of the ruling, but the film survived since it had already been distributed worldwide. Max Schreck, the actor who played Count Orlok, perfectly performs as an eerie, unnatural character. His mannerisms and posture are fantastically unsettling. There's a movie called Shadow of the Vampire where Willem Dafoe plays Shrek. From what I hear, it's basically a movie set behind the scenes of Nosferatu where Shrek may be an actual vampire. I'm definitely going to check it out soon. The character design for Count Orlok is iconic and creepy. Nosferatu is said to come from the seed of Belial, which makes him a demon spawn, and the character definitely looks demonic. I for one like the idea that vampires came from demons. The film uses shadows to create some amazing visual effects. There is a whole sequence where Orlok is going up to Ellen's bedroom, which is filled with amazing shots that use shadows perfectly to make Orlok seem more supernatural in both appearance and power. During one part of the movie, Hutter is warned not to go outside because there have been werewolf sightings. We then get to see the werewolf, which is a hyena. I guess at the time the movie was made, most people had probably not seen an actual hyena. I can definitely understand that silent films aren't for everyone. Heck, some people don't even like black and white movies, so a silent, black and white, German expressionist film might be a recommendation that falls on deaf ears. But I highly recommend checking out Nosferatu to see some amazing early cinema craftsmanship. I would definitely suggest watching it over Dracula, even though it is a less faithful adaptation of Stoker's book. Remember when Nosferatu kept flicking the lights on and off at the Krusty Krab? Number 6, The Open House, 2018, directed by Matt Angel. After his father gets hit by a car and dies, a boy named Logan goes to live in his aunt's house that is currently for sale with his mom Naomi due to money troubles. Weird things start happening around the house. A man is staying there and messing with the mom and son. The man eventually decides to kill them. During the killing phase, Logan accidentally stabs and kills his mom because of a fear reaction before being killed himself. The man then goes on to another open house. The open house man, Logan, and reckless driving are the killers. Cat's mom recommended this as a bad horror movie, and oh boy was she right. This movie is absolutely terrible. It's completely uninspired, filled with tropes, and relies solely on eerie music, silence, loud noise, jump scares. In the very beginning of this movie, our main character Logan flat out explains to the audience the whole plot during a conversation with his mom. The gist of what he says is, aren't open houses creepy? What if someone who came to an open house stayed after it ended? Gee Logan, I wonder if that is going to be what this movie is about. The viewer knows early on that the weird happenings in the house aren't paranormal but actually the work of a chubby older white man. Watch out, Logan. This baby boomer is going to destroy all your participation trophies. I know that a lot of serial killers in real life have been chubby older white men, but having that be your spooky killer in a horror movie doesn't really work for me. To get some basics out of the way, the acting is fine for the most part, even though the actor that plays Logan could work on his delivery, and the gore in this is also alright. 
Now on to different observations about why this movie is dumb. There is a character named Martha who is basically a strange old lady with Alzheimer's that is put in the movie as a pointless red herring character that you never think is really behind anything. What she does throughout the movie is just remind Logan and Naomi that someone they love died tragically. There are a ton of scenes with the characters going into a basement and each time they go they bring a flashlight. This felt strange since no one really uses anything but their phone as a flashlight these days but whatever. The house also had a landline phone. I watched this movie with Kat and joked, Hey, what's that thing? When the landline phone was shown, and she replied, I think it's called a VCR. That was a good joke that I would like to put in my own horror comedy. Throughout the entire movie, we are supposed to be scared of things that aren't scary. A blocked passageway in the basement. Getting woken up during broad daylight. A normal looking dude just living his life. There are just so many awful, unearned, loud noise jump scares in this. There are more tropes than I care to bring up, two of the most unnecessary being getting a call from inside the house and developing pictures to find out that someone has been taking pictures of you when you were sleeping. It's like whoever wrote this looked up top 5 scary stories on an old website. In one scene, Logan goes to use his phone only to find out that the SIM card was removed. Okay, really? Have you ever tried to remove a SIM card from an iPhone? I don't think it is some simple quick thing you can just do. The phone should have been smashed or missing. Nobody would have meticulously taken out the SIM card and put the phone back in its case. Throughout the movie, we are hammered in the face by the fact that Logan wears contacts. There is a part where the killer, who has already slit a man's throat and tortured Naomi, is on top of Logan. The killer gently removes Logan's contacts. That scene is seriously one of the stupidest things I have ever seen. Logan also wears glasses. You could have completely removed the contacts from the plot. Just have the killer take off and smash Logan's glasses instead of this laughable contact removal scene that would honestly work super well in a horror comedy due to its absurdity. My contacts. I can't see without my contacts. If you really want weird eye stuff, have the killer gouge or slash his eyes. Someone gently removing your contacts is more annoying than scary. It's freezing outside the house and the killer knocks Logan out, outside and pours water on him to try and kill him. Logan survives and turns into Ice Boy. There is a part towards the end where Logan is running through the woods while freezing to death that is way funnier than it should be. It's like he's practicing a run he's going to use to make a Bigfoot hoax video later. I could probably go on and on about tropes in this movie, stupid and unnatural character decisions, like going into the basement to reignite the pilot light and a towel multiple times instead of putting on some clothes first like any normal person would, but giving this movie any more time seems pointless. If you want to watch a terrible movie you can laugh at with your friends that is straight up bad, not good bad, this might be for you. Otherwise, pass. Number 7. Vampire Movie Recommendations Since I recently covered Dracula and got to Nosferatu earlier in this episode, I thought I would use this seventh topic to talk about some good vampire movies that I have already seen. Full caveat here, it has honestly been some time since I have seen a few of these, but I recommend all of them even though I know a few have some shortcomings. This will be like a mini episode inside the actual episode. I'll start off with What We Do in the Shadows, 2014,
directed by Taika Waititi, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, and Jemaine Clement, which is a New Zealand vampire comedy. It's basically a feature-length reality show where the people being filmed are vampires. It's hilarious and unique. Also, who doesn't love Jemaine Clement from Flight of the Concords fame? Let the Right One In, 2008, directed by Thomas Alfredson. This one is a coming-of-age movie that also has a vampire. I'd say it's the bleakest of the recommendations, but it is very well done and a very interesting take on vampires. It's dramatic, but also brutal. Speaking of brutal, another good one is 30 Days of Night, 2007, directed by David Slade. Want to see some ravenous vampires attack a town in Alaska during one of the area's extended night periods? This one's for you. It's in no way perfect, but it's a fun vampire action movie. It features vampires with mouths full of pointy teeth used to get all that tasty blood out of humans quickly. What if you want to see more of a slice-of-life vampire dramedy? Check out Thirst 2009, directed by Park Chan-wook. Park Chan-wook is one of my favorite directors. Check out all of his stuff. He recently did an English movie called Stoker, like Bram Stoker. Another vampire connection. Nailed it. With Thirst, we get an awesome Korean vampire movie where a priest turns into a vampire along with a girl he's always liked. Does the couple that sucks blood together stay together? The last one I want to recommend is from the Underworld franchise. The entire franchise is fun, but if you've seen the movies, some of them are pretty bad. One of the movies is particularly cool. That one would be Underworld Rise of the Lycans, 2009, directed by Patrick Tetapolos. Have you ever wanted to see a medieval society of vampires that have to deal with an uprising of werewolf slaves? Of course you have. The time period definitely helps make this movie. Vampires and werewolves battling it out with medieval weaponry is a lot cooler to see than watching them fight with guns. Turn your brain off and get a nice action fix with this one. Those were my recommendations for all you listeners hungry for vampire films. In the near future, I'll be covering more fanged films like Shadow of the Vampire, Vampire's Kiss, and A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night once I get around to watching them. That wraps up episode 11 of Blank is the Killer. As always, a big shout out to Sticker Fridge for hosting this podcast on their website, StickerFridge.com, which allows it to pop up on all your favorite podcast apps and iTunes. There is a new podcast about sports on the network, fittingly titled The Sports Show, so if you like sports ball games, go on and give it a listen. If you have any comments, complaints, dad jokes, recommendations, or mad ravings, shoot your thoughts my way on YouTube, Facebook, or Instagram. If you want to be a guest or take over the entire seventh topic on your own for an episode, hit me up in a similar fashion. Look out for episode 12 on February 11th. Now I'm off to sharpen my home invader defense knives. Toodaloo!